0: 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Game Over. Welcome to Game Over Montreal. Hey, we had the one loss and it's right back to the win column from Martin St. Louis, Montreal Canadiens. It is a different team nowadays down 3-1 to one of the best teams in the entire league this year and the canadians claw back in i'm going to welcome in my guest here shane malloy shane weirdest thing of this montreal canadian season might be that they just swept the calgary flames
1: they won both games yeah considering you know how good calgary obviously has been this year they had some ups and downs but primarily they've been juggernaut team in some respects and they were up 3-1, and, you know, the the plucky Montreal Canadiens found their way to get back, and, you know, led by, you know, Bobby Orr, you know, Ben Charrat, and his two goals and one assist in 25 minutes. Um, you know, I saw your tweet, which is actually, it gave me a good chuckle, as, you know, you know hey, Cal us knock, 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 you know, <laughs> are you watching? You know, Ben I've been doing <laughs> that
0: I've been doing that, like, the last two weeks, ever since the game against Toronto, and Leafs fans don't appreciate it for some reason.
1: No, but, you know, I found it comical in the fact that, you know, it just happens to be, they talk about that type of player, you know, you're trying to maximize obviously value coming into the trade deadline for that standpoint. So no, he looked, he looked great. Um, Like no bones. He's a defensive defenseman, but you know, this is what feeling good about yourself. And, you know, I'm sure you guys have talked about this on the show about the concept over strategy with, you know, the head coach Marty St. Louis and how that allows you to use your cognitive ability and not just be stuck in a system of this, like, I'll be robotic, right? Like, it's just like, it's painful to watch when coaches do that. So it allows some, gives you some leniency and allows players to make mistakes and try things. Like, 100%. you're going to make mistakes. Like, it's okay, right? It's going to happen. Like, if you minimize, try to like coach your way into minimizing mistakes, it's awful. Like, players hate it and you can't have your players hate what they do like yeah. there's and no there's no there's no chance for success
0: especially and when things are going bad and the players hate what they're being told to do or being forced yeah. to do you get what we saw the first half of this season right which was just not only a bad team but a bad team that most of the players were miserable you know like it's they're getting paid a lot of money but i think people have to understand the human element of when you hate going into work every day and it's not fun. It's hard to be an elite athlete. You know, I I know people got on Jeff Petrie a lot this season in the turnaround from him and Cole Coffield, as soon as the coaching staff changed, like it speaks a lot to what they were going through, but also just on the human level, the, how much a fresh start matters, right? And how much a change in perspective matters. Uh, this this team, I know, Like, let's talk about Ben sharat to start because I think he's the hot topic right now. He scored the overtime winner. I believe he scored the go-ahead goal as well. Or maybe it was the third goal, maybe the tying goal. I don't remember. I'm just like, I'm up too late. I've been up too early today. The kids got up at six. It's already I almost you. midnight.
1: I, was, I, was, I, was, I did the same thing with my boys to get him off to school, so I know.
0: <laughs> it's just, it's hard to keep things straight. But either way, two goals for Big Ben sharat tonight. There, they mentioned during the broadcast, I, th- I think it was Pierre LeBron or maybe it was Chris Johnston, that uh, there's lots of teams in on Ben Sherat, but all those teams are telling the Montreal Canadiens, you got to lower your ask a little bit. I don't think after tonight that the Canadians are planning on lowering that ask a little bit.
1: Well, I, they're in a s- specific strategic time frame where you, know, you allow the marketplace... To start to, you know, you, ha- you set your standard and then you see what the different coercive pressures happen over the next 10 days. And that's going to really dictate whether you move off your positions and it bases on bases on you know, obviously who they're talking about and what they're talking about, whether it's picks or prospects or young players, what it happens to be. Um, I would suspect that, you know, they're trying to get into that pick and a pick and a prospect type player. Um, and I think that's probably what they're looking at. I would suspect that would make the most sense based on their, you know, the discussions they've had about rebuilding their team. I know everybody like, oh, can't say the word rebuild. Come on, come on, look. Let's just say what it is. It's okay. I mean, you don't have to have scorched earth. It doesn't have to be Arizona Coyotes. Yeah. So
0: but, doesn't you know, necessarily, it doesn't have rebuild. Doesn't mean stripping it down to the, the to the posts. You know, like it doesn't necessarily mean that. But they are rebuilding. There's no question about it. I uh, got a question here. Can one game really do that for Ben Sherat? No, we're like, I'm being tongue in cheek. Of course. I think the main thing to keep focus on is that as Ben Sherat is continually used in all situations, they're trying to showcase him on the right side now. He's not necessarily playing amazing, but, you know, he gets a big performance tonight against a really good team. It does stand out for executives but i don't think that a game like tonight uh
1: it doesn't necessarily change the narrative but what it does is um helps increase recency bias exactly positive feeling about that player said oh you know let's not forget or think about how awful the season has been for montreal and that's who ben Sherrod is you know exactly because we are human beings and we are subject to those biases you know, in a, in a variety of different ways, and it's about sort of reframing and reminding. No, no, this is who he is. He's Ben Sherratt, you know, like St. Louis Blues Ben Sherratt. right? And the first, you know, when he first came in with Montreal and went to the Stanley Cup Finals and was a stalwart. That's who he is. He's not what he is the first part of the season. So it's sort of it's part of like reframing those questions, and that has some impact in terms of when you are having those conversations in a negotiation. Like, hey, yeah. let, let's make no bones about it. He's not like he's not going to be pulling a first round pick out of a team, but, you know, you're trying to maximize some value there.
0: Well, it seems like a lot of the insiders are saying that he's definitely getting a first round pick, which is, I mean, it's crazy to me considering like my opinion of Ben Chirot, but um, I, would wanna,
1: I wouldn't want to give it up. But if they get a first round pick out of Ben Chirot and something else, well, That's good. Yeah. No, 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 no. That's very good return. So I think it's a matter of, you know, the teams are probably asking for a set or saying, we'll give you a second and this prospect or most likely a prospect, like, you know, 20 to 22 years of age, somebody that you can immediately, you know, work with comparative. So I think that's more likely, but Hey, they get a first. I mean, I'll be the first to like, call up Kent Hughes and go, nice steal, you know. There may be teams that are you get desperate. You only need one greater fool, you know, in the marketplace. Yep. One one team that says, nope, this is the guy we desperately need. He's going to put us over the top. That's the difference. Not, And I'm not mean. He just restructuring our defense, right? He puts other play, players in better positions to allow us to be a better unit. It's what, you know, I try to frame it in that respect. So, but good on Ben, you know. It's always good to feel, you know, happy about their game. And um, I'm looking forward to coming into Montreal. So I'll be in there in about 11, 12 days, 11 days to catch three games before the trade deadline. So we're going to, I'll get to see the team up close and personal and get a better idea. And hopefully not all the trades happen. well, hopefully all the trades happen while I'm there and not on my, my, my way back home, right. On pretty much the morning or the late night of trade deadline.
0: Yeah, back, as soon as you get on the plane, that's when everything will happen. That's the way the Montreal Canadiens operate. Yeah. I think for, for Ben Sherratt, oh man, I lost what I was going to say now. Uh, there was a question here. Oh, I, what you mentioned earlier about market pressure. I, I feel like that's the biggest thing for what's going to determine. I mean, I guess that's not really a hot take or anything. That market pressure is going to ter- determine the return. But it's, it's things like, how long is Jake Muzzin going to be out in Toronto? Not to twist the knife on the Maple Leafs bench rot. No, but that's a much. perfect
1: ex- that's a perfect example,
0: right? And yeah. then it becomes a situation where it goes from a luxury trade to a we need to fill this hole going into the playoffs because we cannot afford to go out early this time again. Yes. So things change drastically.
1: And I think what bench rot, he. Fits a certain mold, a type of player, and we'll use Toronto as an example that they actually need is the insulator for a guy who, for another defense partner who can be allowed to go out and skate and make plays where Ben can like hold back a little bit because he's played that role. So you look at, you know, the Sandines and like those type and Riley's and those type of defensemen. That you know, or Dermot that you want to be activated in the play on a more active, more consistent basis. But if you have a guy like, you know, Muzzin comes back, but you add Sherrat, they use Toronto's example. Well, that provides that insulation that they really that team needs. So that's really about okay, what do we pay for him? And there's other teams around, like you don't think the Calgary Flames would want Ben Sherratt. Yeah, I mean,
0: they're in on apparently he was supposed to be part of the Toffoli deal and it was just supposed to be like one mega deal, according to the broadcast tonight.
1: Well, I know. And that was that was and that was I confirmed that that was true because I was curious, too. And then I was just sort of curious. Okay, wait a minute. What did Montreal want that you guys weren't willing to give at that time?
0: Had to be one of the higher end prospects, right? Like the Pelche or
1: which you like. I don't playing Calgary, you're not squeezing Peltier out yeah. for Ben Sherrod. I mean, like, I just like, okay, that's great, Kent, but go away. <laughs> that's not happening today. <laughs> right. So, you know, you can come off that ledge there, buddy. Um, no, and it, but they, no, but there are players in the Calgary system that I would be interested in to say, okay, no, okay. That's, I'd be interested in that player um, and a pick. Obviously, I think you got to add a little, you got to add something into that as well. So it's um, particularly because you need all those draft assets and not necessarily always to trade, to, like, right. to, to pick, but you need in, in terms of trade value too, right? As that, as you're trying to build your team, it's not all about, okay, everything we get has to be focused on the draft. And yes, it will be because the draft is held in Montreal this year, but you know, you need to sort of spread out where your assets are from that standpoint and getting other people's prospects is not a bad thing. So we're going to see what happens with Montreal in, in that respect. And I just think what this win does for Montreal is it also, we talked about the reframing of Charat. It reframes the team a little bit too, is that the players themselves and the, what's going on there. Like, so you're, you're getting a player who isn't coming out of this burnt hole of like this destruction where we, you're getting a player over the next couple of weeks that, is feeling good about their game. Is feeling good about where they just left. Like that's important, right? Cause you don't want to like tr- as a GM trade for a player that you got to like start pumping them full of sunshine, right? Because the last, you know, three months or four months have just been, you know, getting kicked in the kicked in the nether regions every day. <laughs> you know, it's not, that's not healthy. That's not good because you also don't want to bring that into your, into your room. Yes. They're going to be happy about, Okay. I'm going to a place we're going to a playoff team and there's a chance to win. And, you know, they do get that initial endorphin and excitement, but, you know, it's habit, right? So it's actually in retrospect for Montreal Canadiens having the new head coach come in with all these new, you know, positive vibes and the building guys up again and playing a way that's more fun has a value to it in the trade market as well.
0: Yeah, I feel like that's something that, hasn't really been talked about enough in the the value of bringing in Martin St. Louis and having the players frankly just enjoy themselves a little bit because the difference has been unbelievable. Uh just it's it's actually hard to believe how quickly things changed and how much things changed because it's not even just in terms of performance, which is also big. Like obviously they've gotten You know, I think six wins now in, I believe this is St. Louis 10th game. So that's great in and of itself, but just the demeanor of players on the bench, on the ice, the willingness to make the extra play. You know, it's it's, contagious. It is. It's contagious. It it changed immediately. And I I wonder, like, uh, some of that for sure is going to be a change in strategy. And some players were not happy with things under Dominique Ducharme. But I wonder how much of that is also just like how much clout does Martin St. Louis have stepping into a dressing room and saying, like, we're going to do this. I feel like a lot of NHL players. Like, look at Cole Caulfield. We've talked about it many times in the show. He grew up wearing number twenty-six in honor of St. Louis. Like, that is huge.
1: I mean, you can't you can't discount his his aura when he walks into a room.
0: No, yeah.
1: Particularly around around. Maybe it's different if it's like you and I or or fans, but as players, particularly ones who watched him watched him play when they're younger and he walks into him, regardless of what his coaching experience is like he walks in and this is Marty St. Louis. You're just like, as a player, you're like, Oh, like you're automatically dialed in. This isn't some guy you're pulled out of like some coach that, Oh, is, you know, working his way up the system. It's just, it changes the whole dynamic that aura matters. Like there's, I've only been in awe of a couple people in hockey. Where I shook their hand, I was just kind of like Gordy Howe and Jean Beliveau. Yeah, you just—I was like, sort of, just stunned a little bit there. It took me about a, a good couple seconds, and those couple seconds sound, seemed like forever. So that impact matters for the team, you know. And he makes them feel good about themselves. Like, so I'm—I'm I'm ha- I'm like I'm happy for the players because you never—never want to cover a team, and I've been around it. Like when I covered the Vancouver Canucks and they were bottoming out. It was, you walked into a room and it was palatable. You could feel it in the air. So I think that's going to make a difference for, you know, the value of the Montreal Canadiens and for them moving forward, you know, for the players that stay and then the players that go on because players talk. So when these players leave and go off to other teams, guaranteed the locker room and, and their friends are going to ask that play what's it like to play with Marty St. Louis? Yeah. What's it like to play there? Oh man, he came in. It was great. I love this. And I love this. And I love this. And they're all excited. Well, players talk and that gets around really fast. So that helps them in terms of, you know, that free agent acquisition. You know, they talk about Montreal and the taxes. Nah, look, the players make enough money. They have enough professionals to offset their taxes. It's not really honestly that big of an issue. It really, it's made up. So in, in the media, but I haven't, you know, I've enough a business experience and I hope my degrees have done something to, you know, help my brain figure those things out. It's not that big of a deal. It's more about the organization, how you're treated and what the coaching staff is like. And he's changed that narrative completely overnight. And that's yeah. a massive impact.
0: Huge. You know, It's it's yeah. crazy how much of an impact it's had. Uh, another question here from Thomas is uh, directed towards me. Uh, would you d- be disappointed if they didn't draft in the top five this year? Because, Uh, They dominated in the last 25 games or so of the season. I mean, listen, I don't really cheer anymore, although I I will say I've greatly enjoyed watching the team (laughs) in comparison since Martin St. Louis came aboard. It's definitely the closest I've been to becoming a fan again, just because it's enjoyable and the stark contrast from the first half of the season is such a jarring thing, but there is a very small chance that the Canadians could push themselves out of the bottom five of the. I'm looking at the
1: standings, and I would.
0: they yeah,
1: overtake Seattle, Buffalo, Philadelphia, and New Jersey. Yeah, so they'd have to maybe, do eight,
0: eight points above New Jersey, and New Jersey has a game in hand. Ottawa has two games in hand. I I don't know. Eight points is a big gap, and that's a lot of teams to leapfrog.
1: Well, particularly when you have 27 games left yeah that's a lot i mean it i'm not saying it's not impossible but it, you know if i look obviously you know prospects is my thing and um it should be as i look at the draft you know i don't have a really have a draft board yet and it, i don't like when people put out lists this early or mostly actually almost at all because it's silly It's 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 data collection time and until you're ready to put the list together, don't put a list together because it really causes biased disruption because it really, like, although you can look at and say, oh, it's only at this time, it really does mess up what your list looks like. And if they're inside the top five, I'm not worried. Ideally, they want number one. You always want to, like, dictate terms in a draft. But there's some players in the two, three, and four hole that uh, yeah, I think they'd be super happy about getting. And then based on know what they have in the system, don't get me wrong, if you have number one, you're going to take Shane Wright, but there's a power forward and a defenseman in there that might look good in Montreal Colors in three or four years down the road. Yeah. So, yeah, I wouldn't worry about it.
0: All right, uh, we have to talk about Nick Suzuki a little bit because absolute monster game from him, and I had seen several messages in the chat talking about Nick Suzuki so far, so we definitely have to talk about him. It's funny, in a game like this where... The Canadians, frankly, were pretty great in the first couple periods at even strength. And then the Flames really took over in the third. Suzuki's line was overmatched a little bit in the first period by the fourth line of the Flames, which was weird. But they really elevated every time they weren't against the fourth line and seemed to get better as the game went on. But despite the fact that like by the eye test, 100% agree... Nick Suzuki was great tonight. He actually had the lowest uh, shot attempt differential on the team tonight, and that line kind of got buried, which is is funny, because I do think that he was fantastic, but it's one of those situations where single-game shot attempt metrics are not necessarily the best tell-all of who had the best game and who had the worst game. Because also, he's 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 playing like defending matchup minutes in the last couple minutes as well, right?
1: Right. I mean, you take away that, but also... It's the way Calgary Flames play. So they're a highly um, aggressive checking team. I don't mean checking in terms of body checking. I mean, checking in terms of taking angles to attack and forcing teams to do things they don't want to do. And when you have a team like that against Suzuki, there are going to be times where he's going to want to be super creative and he gets kind of like off his game a little bit. And that's where, freedom for him to adjust and he'll figure it out over time. Like he's that dynamic that that's not something I'm particularly worried about long-term. Um, but yeah, I agree. I thought like what he also, he does sometimes you sort of forget is he's such a catalyst that players are drawn to him, that he creates time and space for his other line mates. I can't emphasize how much important those two words are in hockey in, in every respect it's time and space. So he'll let his line mates do, uh, do more work in terms of skating and finding holes. And he'll just dish off and then dart around because they're going to be drawn to him. Because if you can take him out of the game, that's a massive part of their offense. So there is some tactical like situations where you have to look at, oh, he doesn't look dynamic. Well, part of it's you know due to his opposition and then him recognizing what are the best counter moves when I am on the ice. So I agree with you on the eye test. No, no, he looked really good. And he just, maybe the numbers don't represent. And that's the problem. When we talk about like using that kind of data, right? And I emphasize data, not analytics. We is always that need sometimes
0: context.
1: Context is key, right? And then if you're just, and it's funny, I had a conversation with a, who's a guy who's a data scientist. He's a professor. And we were talking about, hey, do you like I was t- asking him about qualitative analysis. And he goes, never done it. Because I'm just a quant guy. Right. I just deal with lagging measurements and try to work on some of the leading and like, what about the context? He goes, I know. Right. And he's like one of the brightest people in hockey, like, like what we call analytics. And he goes, I know. Right. It's just, he accepts the fact and understands that that is an issue. Right. Is like recognizing, as you mentioned, the context. So, you know, you can look at the metrics and go, Oh, Caulfield had a bad game based on these metrics. Well, what's the value of it? Like, what's the value of those metrics? Is that your end all to be all in your decision making? Because if so, uh oh, you're in trouble. Like you're You're behind,
0: you're behind, frankly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You're caught now. You're caught with these leg measurements in a hole and you're going to make really poor decisions based on that. So I, I agree with you. I thought Cothfield had a really good game and he did what he needed to do to make his teammates around him better.
0: Yeah. And And, I thought
1: and, and productive
0: as much as, uh, Like scoring a goal and setting up the Petrie goal, like the Petrie assist, this assist on the Petrie goal was phenomenal. Like the attention to detail to go kind of like a backwards flip pass across his own body to Petrie behind the play. And then Petrie kind of had to do the same thing on the shot shooting, like almost behind himself.
1: Yeah, to, I can't do that.
0: Thread the needle. No, me, me, either. <laughs> me either. That was incredible. But I almost feel like Suzuki's play on the third goal was better because it it almost seemed like he was playing like a strategy game where he pulled the Calgary defense over to one side, waited for the perfect time to flip that pass over to uh, create the goal for Ben Chirot. I know he only to got a, the... Uh, to create a space. Exactly. Create created that space. Yeah. And he only got the secondary assist on that one, but it was a phenomenal secondary assist. Like all three goals that he was involved in tonight. Spectacular plays. And, which, and that's
1: another, I agree. And that's another version of when you talk about context, everybody gets caught and they're like, Oh, he doesn't have as many primary assists. I'm like, the primary assist could be a tap pass, which can be honestly like really not that, you know, consequential. To or, be a honest. And, or a shot
0: that creates a rebound. Shot.
1: Right. Like it really, I mean, in many cases, like that's why I always fought against the overvaluation of the of the primary assist. I'm like, man, if I was a like you watch me as a player, I'm the king of my ridiculous like three foot, four foot, like like garbage primary pass that somebody smashes into the goal. Oh, look at Malloy and his primary like assist rate. I'm like, dude, trust me, the, the defense, the defenseman who like made this thread, this beautiful pass to me, and it went off like the heel of my stick because like I fumbled it. <laughs> Come on. Like, that's, that's what I mean, right? So like, you real that that's what really matters. And I like, I agree with like Caulfield's game and Suzuki's game. Like, I think both those guys, like you talk about their style of game and what they do. Like, you can't just measure it on those, those those metrics, It's just—it's dangerous.
0: Yeah, one hundred percent. I see a few people mentioning uh, Rem Pitlick as well. I feel like Rem Pitlick is a really interesting player because anytime you get a guy off of waivers who can come in and like score goals on a team that isn't scoring goals, it's really interesting. But I think there's a bit of a danger with Rem Pitlick and the Montreal Canadiens right now that I—I I don't think they're going to fall into the trap. But I look at Rem Pitlick and I see. Paul Byron right and I think you know, that if they value sort of him yeah. as more than what Paul Byron was when they got him on waivers that's a mistake but if they see him as just Paul Byron that's great he's a good added value guy the speed that he plays with the speed to burn he can play on the penalty kill excellent but don't expect him to be like a dominant force at even strength not like I, I had an argument re- with Eric angles earlier this week because he's a replacement he level player yeah
1: that can provide value in circumstances, right? There are like he's specific to certain areas of the game that you can put him in that he's gonna have some success in. Not all the time, some of the time, because if he wasn't, wouldn't have picked him up on waivers. I mean, exactly. yes, not every NHL GM or their, man- their management staff make good decisions all the time. They clearly don't. But, you know, if he's that valuable, they're not, teams aren't letting them go on, on waivers, right? They're going to, they're going to put him in a different position. So take the bump, take the bump of the new player. Cause you're going to have that And with Marty St. Louis and find a way to make him more valuable because there is a potential that you could move him if you really wanted to, or you keep him and you put him in a position as a, like a penalty killer, a fourth line guy can give you some energy, give you some speed and use that speed effectively. Make sure that he understands how he has to use the speed within the concept that they're playing, right? Um, so yeah, you keep that, Eric. I, I love it. I like. I love Eric English, but get, you got to give it to him once in a while and make him like, make him think, and then make him laugh, right?
0: Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, I was giving it to him uh, in private. I, I disagreed with him in public, and then we had it out in the DMs a little bit because uh, he had posted an article that uh, Arturi Lekinen was. Expendable now because Pitlick and Dauphin were new 200 foot players who would be cheaper on the fourth line. And I was like, if you combine Dauphin and Rem Pitlick together, then they're a 200 foot player. But one of them's all defense and one of them's all offense. So you can't really call them 200 foot players. And like, they, they look good not, they right don't... now because they're both playing with Arturi Lekkinen or not Dauphin. Dauphin's playing with Gallagher and Hoffman. But Pitlick's underlings have taken a big jump forward because he's playing with Lekkonen.
1: Well, and also Dolphin. I mean, like in it, in a team that's not in the bottom five of the league, would he even be playing in the NHL?
0: No. I mean, even this team, he wouldn't be if they weren't so injured, right? Like, no,
1: he wouldn't. He'd be in the American league and that's where he would be. And it's just, it's the bump because he's playing now that I'm not saying that he couldn't play in the NHL. He can, but as the, ta- as the rosters improve, he's going to get squeezed out. He just is. And in many cases, maybe Pit- Pitlick will be too from that respect. You know, they like there's a lot of players that play in the American League or who are on waiver claims that can play in this league. Yeah. But as the teams get better, and that's the whole goal of the organization, those players get squeezed out. That's why you see these players move around to the bottom 10 teams of the league. You know, you can actually watch them, right? Move around that. And there's a reason for it, right? They're, they're basically temporary fo- um, hole fillers. There's no way those two players are going to replace Lacken. Like, I I agree with you on that. That's like in terms of like the overall value of what the, those players are going to provide. They provide value in certain areas, but let's get real. They're replacement level forwards. Yeah. and that's, I mean, that's I think okay. if you
0: have a fourth line that's built around Rem Pitlick, that's not a bad thing. You know, obviously Um, you want your center to be a little bit better, but I think maybe if it's like Ryan Paling or Jake Evans, that's not a,
1: that's not a line I'd want on a playoff team.
0: No, but I mean, as a rebuilding team, right. It's not the worst thing. No, because the
1: the contract is cheap. Yep. Right. And you know what you have and he can like, he's not a, he's not an anchor as a player. So he fills that role temporarily until you find somebody better and you need to find somebody better. Yeah, And I'm not being mean, I'm just, I'm looking at it honestly from a roster construction, like philosophy and standpoint is these are placeholders until you get somebody better. And if they don't, then we're talking about a regime change again. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> and we, you don't, and I'm sure the Montreal Canadiens don't, don't want that. Um, you know, one thing we actually didn't, I don't know if you guys talked about or mentioned was the hiring of Nick, of Nick Bobgroff in the amateur staff. Now I've had a chance to like, talked to Nick quite a few times out in the field. Um, actually, I actually had dinner with a bunch of uh, New York Rangers and stuff when I was out at a tournament. And I actually meant, I actually sent a text off to Kent telling them how great a hire I thought it was to get him. Like, cause the fact that he was available and guys like that shouldn't be available. So for the people who don't know Nick really well, cause he's kind of under the radar for the most part. Um, he's exceptionally intelligent. And exceptionally hardworking. So, when I've spoken to people who've worked with him in Los Angeles and in New York, those two things are the first two things they say about him exceptionally intelligent. Like, you know, there's, they talk about, oh, there's a lot of smart people. No, no, like he's in a higher level of intelligence and he's very well educated um, and he's an exceptionally hard worker. Like, he's a grinder. So I think he fits exactly what they need in terms of Montreal and that extra like set of eyes to run the amateur staff. Because I, I would I'm going to make the assumption that Mark that you know Marty's probably going to be still remain as the director of player personnel and oversee sort of like have that extra set of eyes out there for the amateur and the pro. And then Nick will come in and run that amateur staff. And he doesn't suffer fools. And he's got a little bit of arrogance in him, which I actually particularly really like when I talk to him because he, he just doesn't suffer fools. Like if you're going to talk to him about players or methods or protocols or procedures, you have to bring evidence hmm. to support why you're saying that. He's just not going to accept it blankly he's going to like, wait a minute, if that doesn't make any sense to him, he's going to say something to you, which I actually really appreciate. Right. So, and if anybody gets a chance to go, like, if you go on elite prospects, click on his profile, and there's like a picture of him and the look he's giving somebody over his shoulder, that's, <laughs> it's the perfect look of like, when I look at Nick, he's like, Oh, that's Nick. Right. It's like, what are you talking about? Right. So, but I thought it was an excellent hire. So, as we had talked about the first time about what's more important for this franchise, it's really building up your staff. It's like your hockey operations staff has more impact and more value than the players that are traded at this deadline. I know everybody's going to be excited about the value getting back and, you know, building the franchise up and that's the focus, but those are temporary. They're temporary. In some cases, in, in most cases, they, they can be reversible in terms of what the value is in getting stuff back, even if you make mistakes. But if you make mistakes in your hockey operations department, in many cases, they can sometimes be irreversible and consequential to the success of your regime, right? Because if they fail, you fail. So which is why I think that's a, a massive like hire for them. It's gonna be he's gonna really help their amateur department a lot. So we'll see how that changes overall.
0: Yeah, I I think the, the there was some criticism of that move both in terms of uh you know somebody that Jeff Gordon's worked with in the past and I think people are very hesitant about uh people coming in and just hiring all their friends because of the whole Bergevin regime and how yeah. much of that and I went won't. down but I think this is a little bit different but the other criticism that I saw was maybe you can tell me if you think it's an unfair one I think one of them is especially unfair but People who look at uh, how New York developed uh, Leas Anderson and the other being Capococco, who was the consensus number two at the time. So it's kind of stupid but that to has criticize n- that.
1: The development of a player has nothing to do with Nick. He's right. a talent evaluator, right? Unless you put him in that position to develop players, which I think he could do because he's intelligent to, to, enough to do so, to do multiple roles, which you don't want him to do. Look, that's, that has nothing to do with Nick nothing to do with and what he did with the New York Rangers. So he's been a part of like two big rebuilds, one in like LA and then one in New York. So he is like based on what he has done, you know, I think that's I think that matters. Right. And he's and he worked in Boston as well, obviously, right? With with Jeff. So he's been in a couple stops with him. Um I think like I think those criticisms are one completely unfair. And two, not even remotely accurate or truthful to what his role was and what he did in the organizations he was in in New York. So I think it's like, I don't know where that was brought up. But if I was in the New York marketplace, I would have said that's silly and sort of like bash that down. Like, cause that doesn't, that's irrelevant.
0: Cause he was, uh, they're like head European scout in New York. Am I wrong there? Or well he no he the got director he moved, of European he was director of
1: European scouting, but also he ended up being um the right hand man to Gordy Clark. So he was um the assistant director of player personnel in that role. Now it's kind of some roles are a little bit different in certain organizations, but he was really Gordy Clark's right hand man because Gordy was starting to wind down and not do as much traveling and um, which is why he's moved over to a pro scouting role in, with New York Rangers. So, Nick started taking on those bigger roles. And I don't think Nick will have any difficulty being a director of amateur scouting, running a staff for the Montreal Canadiens. So, and this is from my experience of not only um, speaking with Nick, you know, at different tournaments and seeing him around games, but also speaking to people who have worked with him in three different organizations. So, and this is. Obviously stuff has been all off the record, uh, but all of it's been positive. You know, when I say like, you know, obviously intelligence and work ethic, you know, obviously matter. I mean, but at a really high end, like one person I really respect had said to me, he's one of the hardest working people I've ever worked with. And one of the smartest people I've ever worked with. And then, you know, a couple of them said, yeah, and he has the ego to go with it. But (laughs) I like ego. I like it. It's actually valuable. You know, it's not a bad thing. Yeah. There is sometimes where ego can be you know, disruptive, but he has high expectations and he expects you to follow along. Like he expects you to be smart enough to figure out and to understand the concepts and procedures and why they're doing what they're doing. Um, Because he doesn't really suffer fools. And I think that's somebody you want in that situation. Because you can't fail in the amateur draft. You cannot. You're, I don't. Ca- Montreal Canadiens are a perfect example of what happens to your franchise when you fail in amateur scouting and player development. Because your GM is forced to rob Peter to pay Paul and make all these trades and free agency, and sooner or later the bottom falls out, and that's what yep. happens to this franchise. So, how about if we built it up the way it's supposed to be through the primarily through the draft and development? So, I think you know. I'm curious to see what Montreal does with their player development. Like that is like the big thing is like, okay, who are you bringing in and how much money you're going to dedicate and staff are you going to dedicate to your player development? Because, you know, we can get, and if you want to get into it, we can talk about their 2017 to 2021 draft, because I think those five years are going to have more of an impact on the success of this franchise than what they get in this trade deadline. And what happens in free agency in the summer, those five years are going to matter more. Like that is, that's what they're, they're staring at. So if you even look at it from those five years, they had 22 picks in the first three rounds, five in the first, 10 in the second, seven in the third. And of those 22 guys, half of them have to play half, half to play more than 200 games in the NHL. So like, as I had mentioned, we had talked about the Montreal Canadiens um, prospects in our show this weekend on hockey prospect radio and got into like four, four players. But if you look at, you know, 2017, the start, yes, Josh Brooks has had, you know, injuries, but him and I and one of those two have to play. Cause I suspect Palin will continue to develop and be a player. And it will he be a third line center. Could he be higher? Maybe, but you know, if he's a third line center, I think that's that's good. Third line center, that's that's good. That's good. I don't a decent
0: a decent result for a 25th overall pick. Before we get too no, it's deep,
1: actually it's actually good
0: though. No, oh, for sure. I mean, that's what I'm I'm trying to say. I'm not by decent. I don't mean like average. I mean it's it's a right. good result. Before we get too deep into the prospects, though, talking about uh, development, I know that uh, it was reported last week that there's expected to be a big move for the Canadians in player development. And I want to get your take on this, Sean, uh, Shane, Adam Nicholas is expected to join the Montreal Canadians moving from the Maple Leafs, which is kind of surprising that the the Leafs would allow that to happen in season, but uh, he's worked with tons of current and former NHLers seems to be highly regarded. Do you think this is a big positive move in terms of player development going forward?
1: Yes. And, and hire more people like that. Yeah. Now like great organizations. So I know some may irk the Montreal Canadiens fans, but really great organizations in certain, in in certain areas are perfectly okay with letting their staff move on to bigger roles because the whole purpose is, is to, when you hire somebody is to help them internally grow and get better and give them opportunity to get better on purpose so, that you know, you're probably going to lose one of them or two of them as it goes on. I think it's a really good first step. And what you need to do is hire three more go- three more people like him. Like, I, like if I, ideally, if I look at it with, like, don't worry about budget. I want two people in player development at the NHL level. I want two people dedicated to the American League. I want another two people dedicated to the prospects that travel around. I want six people. That doesn't include the goalies. That's a whole separate department. I want six people on player development. And that seems like a lot compared if you look at some other teams, but who cares what other teams do? Like think about the cost that you have to pay if your prospects don't turn out of don't develop. So what does it cost you in free agency? What does it cost you in the trade acquisitions to help try to replace that? It's crazy. And like, don't worry about the salary. If you're paying somebody, $150,000, $200,000 150 two hundred thousand dollars a year say say you're paying two hundred thousand dollars for each one of those six people who cares that's nothing what is that <laughs> right like that's 1.2 million dollars plus all the other um, expenses that go along the budget for that staff 1.2 million dollars that's a fourth line player
0: yeah exactly
1: they're, they're, they are they are 20 to 30 times, maybe even 50 times more valuable than a fourth-line player, those six people. So you'll look at return on investment. So that is a smart decision by the Montreal Canadiens. Now go find like four or five more people just like him and pay them and have somebody lead that staff specifically because that'll make the difference. Because when we talk about prospects – it's actually not on the amateur like evaluation side, as we talked about Nick and having him come in. It's really now on the other side of like, okay, we've got these players and they're 23 and younger. Can we make them into NHL players? That's really it. That's the difference. That's the success of this organization is those five years. Cause by the time you draft this year, that player, the first round pick, like the high first round pick should be probably playing in a couple of years, but everybody else is going to be probably draft plus five. Right. So think about five years from now, that's a long time. Unless you
0: get really lucky, right. Or you do, you find a diamond in the rough,
1: you get a Bergeron, a Bergeron in the second round or something crazy like that, which is really rare. So (laughs) that's unlikely to ever happen. So let's, you know, let's be realistic in terms of, what the expectations are of the turnaround time of these of these prospects. So I agree. Like on the player development side, it's a, it's a really good hire, and now go find more people like that. And there are there are a few out there that they could pluck. um And some of them are not even working for NHL teams. Like I could, I'm not going to throw names out because I don't think that's fair to the people that I would throw their name out. But there's some people in this in the market, not necessarily in the Montreal market, but in this in this industry that could be easily very good hires for Montreal. And just add to the group.
0: Yeah, there's the names exist. Uh, just a little note here. Uh, Sarah Y says, I read in an interview that there was practically no player development department when Gorton came in, no communication with players and prospects, players' families, or nutrition and food. Yeah, that was uh, pretty wild when that came out. And I think you can see quite clearly where the priorities lie based on the interview that Mark Bergerman did around the beginning of the season with Marc Antoine Godin talking about uh, Jordan Harris in college and how he hadn't spoken to him for about a year. And then Kent Hughes comes in, and he was like, yeah, Jordan Harris, we think he might want to sign in Boston or New York. Nothing we can do if he wants to sign there. And then Kent Hughes, a couple weeks after he's hired pretty much, goes down and watches, I mean, I guess it was more than a couple weeks, but he goes down and watches uh, the Beanpot in Boston. And who does he meet with? Harris. And all of a sudden he comes back and he's like, yeah, I'm confident that he's going to sign here. Paying attention to people matters. Okay, know, like, yeah. So,
1: yes. And we'll, I'll, I'll say, say this. So we have a guest comes on our show on a regular basis. His name's Pat Malloy. We have the same last name, but we are not related. Most people think he's my brother. Uh, and He's based out of the Ottawa area. And the reason why we have them on is specifically to discuss those factors of, you know, when you're speaking, you have to speak to these players not like not once a year, like player development should be speaking to these players once a week. Yes. Once a week. And you build a specific player profile for that player. It's a, you have tactical reports and then you, uh, and you break down specifically what you want to work on with those players and why and how it's going to improve them in their specific areas. And we're going to give you drills and and different like other exercises or drills to help you build upon that. So those when you when you change what you're working on, it becomes habit. So it's you don't have to think about it. It's automatic. It's an automatic response. So we talk about those things. We did end up doing, I think it was a 17 different uh, segment series on player development. And we ran it all last year and we ran it this year because the segments were so good into understanding and breaking down player development. And my uh, co-host, Brad Allen, actually used to teach MMA fighters and he was a collegiate wrestler about biometrics. And we got into those conversations mentally and emotionally about what it matters to player development. And you look at the teams that have the best player development, look at the LA Kings. You know, you ask anybody in their management group or their directors of scouting how many times their player development talks to their, their players. It's like on a daily and weekly basis because you have to. Yeah. Like you just spent millions of dollars acquiring these players. Cause think about the budget of your entire staff. And then you don't bother to talk to them. That's just asinine crazy to me. It's wild. That, to me, that's a fireable offense. If I'm an owner and I hear that, out of my general manager you're fired fired because i can't trust the rest of your processes like you basically there's no point we might as well just draft on video scouting and analytics and fire an entire entire staff because there's no point of spending the money to go out there and actually watch the players live if you're if that's your development strategy that's crazy like Lucky I was. I'm not a member of the Montreal Canadiens, like media, general media. I don't live in Montreal, because you guys would have heard me screaming about this every day, <laughs> because it's just crazy. Just from a business standpoint, I'm not looking at hockey, just on a business management standpoint of operations. Like, let's just fl- we I mean, you might as well just flush money down the toilet. Go outside, put all the money that Jeff Molson has into a big barrel, and light it on fire. Like, it's, like I, I can't tell you how asinine that is. Like, it's, it goes against every business principle that you could ever learn. So, and I think what Jeff, I think, is really realized is, yes, there's some really good traditional hockey people out there. But if you don't marry that together with sound business principles in, like, human performance and player and personal development, along with like all these other protocols and procedures, you have no chance of winning. Yep. No chance. Right. And that's where I, and that's why when I first came on with you, how curious I was about, and I really emphasized the importance of, yeah, forget about who you, who you trade for. Yeah, that's great. That's nice. No man, who, who are they hiring. Right. Because that's like, that's the legacy of the team players come and go, but the staff, if they stick around for a decade or more, they turn the team into what it is. And what is the team right now? Second worst team in the league.
0: Yeah, bad. <laughs> I mean, frankly, I, I know things are going well lately, but it's a, it's a bad, bad team, a poorly constructed team. All right, let's talk about the prospects from the last five years, because going through this list, I think that we can say relatively confidently, even if like I'm not super high on him, uh, Alexander Romanov is definitely going to hit that 200 game mark for the Montreal Canadiens. Uh, probably hit it relatively soon. Like next, I guess I don't know if he needs another year and a, and a bit. He'll he'll probably hit that. Cole Caulfield definitely going to hit that. Kochaniewicz would have hit did. that, but uh, that's already has. He's over two hundred twenty one. Yeah, but not yet. for the Canadians, right? Yeah, but uh, yeah, bit of a lost opportunity there. Of the players on, that they've drafted, let's we talked about uh, Jesse Alonen last time you were on the show and how you think he's a guy that really needs to hit who are the guys that you look at over this last five years of drafting that you think are most likely to hit that? I, I think we can leave Caden Gouly off because I think everybody assumes that he is as well, uh, but most likely to hit that and guys that you maybe won't hit that, but you really need to hit that in order to get to the next level for this organization.
1: So if we look at in terms of historic, I'm not going to use the past Uh, draft success as an indicator for the future for the Montreal Canadiens because and for the viewers who who don't and the listeners who don't know um so if you look at the salary cap era from 2006 to 2015 the Montreal Canadiens were the worst team in efficiency at drafting developing players to play more than two our games so I'll leave that at that now that the regime has changed I can't use that because they're going to like their decision-making process and their, and their personnel is, is going to change. So I have to look at it looking forward in terms of, okay, they had 22 players, as I mentioned, that were drafted in the first three rounds from 2017 to 2021. I think ideally 10 of those have to hit, if not 11. So we've talked about the ones that already have and, you know, Kokaniemi is left. Um, we think Palin's going to make it. Um, I, you know, we think Cole Caulfield and Caden Gooley will make it, you know, barring catastrophic injury. So let's get through. Um, if I don't count Palin, I think Josh Brook is needs to make it. I think he does. I mean, injury is going to be an issue. He's 23. That's it, it might end up being an, a big ask, but this is where player development really comes in. Um, and you can get, might be able to have to get a player out of that. Jesse yolonen you'll you'll as I mentioned, he's another player. Um, Jaden Struble,
0: mm, this is one for, that I had circled.
1: Now, and it's funny because we talk about him this um, this weekend on Hockey Prospect Radio about he's a, he's one of the best athletes I've seen in a long time, and that's something that both Brad Allen and I talked about. And like the kid is jacked. He has five percent body fat, and he's an athlete. And he's a guy that I think they really have to tap into um, the 2019 draft. He was a second round pick. He's a player. Luke Tuck, I think, has to play. And Jan Misek has to play out of the 2020 draft as well. I think Luke will end up probably being more of a uh, north-south um, energy, third line winger that provides size and grit and does all the dirty work for a team. Jan Misak is another player has to make it. I'm not sure exactly where he's going to fit. He may end up being one of those tweeners, those second, third line tweeners. That's where I sort of like, he, you know, if things work out in terms of the ceiling, I think he's in there. He has to hit. I know it's a conversation that people don't want to have to talk about, but Logan Mayhew has to hit. He's got to hit because you can't trade him right now or in the next year, or maybe even the year after that, because the, uh, because of what happened, there's a toxicity about him. So you're going to have to develop into an NHL player. He has to hit. You can't lose that first round pick. Riley Kidney has to hit. You know, I think um, Captain, the other second round pick in 2021 has to hit. Uh, it'd be great if Olaf Center Ikonen could hit those second round picks. And then Harris. I mean, I don't put a lot of value in the third round picks hitting because the percentage is so low. So if you look at historically, you're talking about like 20% chance in that range, of a guy playing 200 plus games. Like if I told you you had hey you had 20% chance of living, well, that's terrible, right? So like we got to sort of look at that as like the as like okay it's you're not it's not written in stone that that's what's going to happen with that player, but historically through the salary cap error, that's the average his like of the all the NHL teams. And once again, I'm not going to look at the Montreal's average because that's God awful um, yeah. and
0: not as relevant under the new regime. It's not, honestly,
1: it's not relevant at all because they're going to change how they develop players and how they assess players moving forward. So, and the assessment helps on the development side too, because you have to work in syn- synchronicity with your evaluators, right? Because the player development staff will, will evaluate them a certain way. And though other, other people in the other staffs will look at them a certain way, right? And you marry that together. But those are the players like that I look at is Brook, Eikonen, Yolonen. Hopefully, Ol- Olson. He's a maybe. Caulfield and Struble have to play. Uh, Tuck and Misak. I think they need to play. And you got to get uh, two out of Mayu, Kidney, and and Captain. They have to. Yeah, like you don't have a choice because it's been so bad for so long. You got to pull ten players out of that. And not including the guy, you know, the guys that we had talked about in the sort of the Caulfields and the ghoulies of the world and uh, of the palings. Like you got you gotta hit on the, it's more important for me to see that the second round picks hit. Cause your first should be. Like, I mean, I can tell you how bad the Montreal Canadiens' first round picks have, have turned out. They're at, yeah, they're at we 40, know. Forty <laughs> percent efficiency—it's awful, right? You need to yeah. be in the ninety percentile. Like ninety percent of your first-round picks have to play two hundred games. You get into the second round, and if you want to be a contender, you got to be in that fifty percent. Every second second-round pick has got to play, and if you want to be even better than that, like you got to hit—you got to hit two players a draft. If you want to be a contender, it has to be two players and three players, two players and three players. And it has to be that rotation for a whole decade. If you want to, because you need to be able to take some of those players that do make it and trade them off for better assets. Yep. Right. You need to have that ammunition. You can't be just trading futures all the time. Like you're in a better position to upgrade your team. If you're trading away a prospect that is in the American league and is getting, you know, 0. 0.75 points or higher per game as a forward, or is developing as a defenseman. You have such greater leverage. So that's why I like, I just emphasize, I know, like, <laughs> I come from a biased area of like, cause I've had hockey prospect radio for 17 years and I've worked as a scout in the USHL, you know, and I value, and I had to learn traditionally how to scout from older scouts. So I understand the value of that. And yes, I understand the, va- the bias, but I looked at it from a business operations standpoint, and it's the most valuable tool that it, the NHL team has to build value in your organization is drafting, developing, forget everything else. Cause like, I'm not saying you can't, you don't want to be good at it because you should, but if you're bad at those two things, it doesn't matter if you're good in the other area because what you end up being is the Montreal Canadiens right now? Yeah, that's what you end up being.
0: Just a couple of comments here that I have to read out because they're good. Uh, Doug Martin says the problem with Shane as a guest is he doesn't share any opinions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> that's true. Yeah, well, you, know, I, you you bring me in for my opinion, and then, like, and I try to ba- I, I base all my thoughts on doing really strong research. Because I go in the field with the scouts and I travel with them overseas and in, in, into Europe and go out and have beers with them and sit with them at games and learn as much as I possibly can. And so you start and then you start doing research on how successful they are and who's good and who's not and why. Start asking the qui- the questions of why, what and how.
0: Yeah, right? absolutely. Uh, right? So
1: and, and apply it.
0: Dan Hall says, Shane, you're crushing my mood, dude. I'm assuming that was about uh talking about the Canadians being terrible at drafting, but like understand that what we're talking about here is that things are moving away from that. So let's yes. we're not we're not crushing the mood. We're we're building towards no, the mean, future just like the Canadians are. And, and that's uh, why I
1: said that's important about the hires they just made in terms of getting Nick. That's a huge hire. Like yeah. it's like really, really smart. And I look at his track record, um, you know, he has it. Nick Bobroff is, is a really excellent hire. So, look, trust me, there's a big positive vibe. They're pushing it in the right direction.
0: And, of course, we had a, a couple of people mention uh, Joshua Ra- Joshua Waugh because, obviously, he is lighting it up this year in the yes. QMJHL. I think him, along with uh, Sean Farrell and... Yes, Uh, Matthias Norlander are kind of like the dark horse players to get into that category where they're uh, not first or second round picks, but they could become something. I feel like Norlander is a question mark because of how this year went. I thought that he actually got a lot better as he played more in the NHL and kind of got used to the smaller ice and how things go in the NHL. And then the way that to me, it kind of felt like the Canadians took advantage of him in the whole being injured at the start. Uh, they took it to, I think it was like a certain amount of time. If he was still in the organization, they were allowed to send him to Hamilton and not allow him to return to Swe- to Sweden. Sorry, not Hamilton. I'm still stuck in like old, old Montreal American Hockey League team, Laval. Laval. Uh, they ended up not doing that and allowing him going to go to Sweden once uh, Bergevin was let go. But I do wonder if there's like some trust that needs to be repaired between Norlander and the organization. And he doesn't seem to be faring that well back in Sweden this year for Frölunda. Well, so it's all rec- we'll it's, and
1: it's all recoverable. He's it's a 2019 yeah. draft, so he's young. So the reason why I didn't really emphasize as much as the third round picks is that, like historically, it's harder to hit on those players. But that doesn't mean you don't put as much effort and time into those players as you do your second round picks because you have to. I just because of time, I didn't want to go so deep that we're going to, because we could spend four hours talking about the Montreal Canadians prospects easily. But I mean, those are the second I mean, we talk about the Harris, right? The Cameron Hillis, the Norlanders, like you got to hit on those guys as I'm looking at my list. Like if you can hit on those, that's all the bonus. That's when I talk about you hit two players and you hit three. It's that third to like, you know, seventh rounds. And I'll tell you how difficult it is to hit on the fourth to seventh rounds in the salary cap era. On average, fourth to seventh rounds, fifteen players total will play two hundred games. So throw those all those rounds, those five rounds, into a hat and randomly pull out a player because that's how tough it is to get one player. So those first three rounds are critical. So I'm curious to see how much more emphasis they're going to put on player development. So if I'm a Habs fan and I'm looking at the regime change and what they're what they want to do. These steps are the right steps. And I understand that it's it's difficult to hire people because a lot of them are, that you want are on NHL teams or they're in contracts. But I think because they're so so short-staffed in their operations, everybody's currently just managing and there's less time to go hunt for people and have these conversations. That takes time. Due diligence takes time. Like, you know, they're missing like an assistant GM to run Laval. On a regular basis, right? They really should have another assistant GM that's responsible for the amateur and pro staff, right? That oversees what Nick and the amateur staff does and what the pro staff does, right? And, and then the, the assistant GM in Laval is responsible for the management of that team and player development and then keeping an eye on what's going on in the East Coast team. And don't get and this is one of the things I really like, what happens with Montreal, what's happened with Montreal. These are things in the past that's happened that I do like is their farm team moved to Laval and then their East- ECHL team is close by too. They're all like right there. So if yeah. you're talking about the importance of player development, management and player development can get on these players and see them and work with them immediately and not wait and not see a guy for like, oh yeah, we saw him like six weeks ago or two months ago. Two months. Two months in the year of a kid who's twenty or twenty-one years old, that's that's like five years for you and I. You know, it's so critical to be with them on a regular basis and just keep moving them in the right direction on and off the ice, um, because you. I don't think you can spend enough money in those areas.
0: No, and it's going to be I'm interesting different- to see. In a, I think it's going to be very quick that we see the difference between the sink or swim it's up to you attitude that the canadians had like the old school attitude of the previous which regime is, to a much crazy. more proactive approach that this regime is taking it like it's going to be really interesting to see how many players develop relatively quickly because Almost can,
1: how many can they salvage
0: yes yeah exactly how many, can,
1: how many can you salvage as that's what we're talking about in this like not so much the 2021 or the 2020 but really the 2017 to 2019, how much can you salvage now operate? It's an operation of salvage. How much can you help them recover what they've like lost in terms of time that I'm really fascinated in. And then how are they going to do that? So why are you doing it? You know, what you're going to do, how you are going to do it. That's what I'm interested in. And how many people are you going to hire? And Oh, I, I do like the, um, adding the title to John Sedgwick, I think that mattered in terms of, because that's he is an assistant general manager and to sort of give him his specific roles of what he is. And because when you're talking to other agents or talking to other teams and that title is there, it actually carries more weight than people realize. Yeah. He's the assistant GM, right? And then give him the power and the management of, and I like the fact that what he brought up is he changed it from the analytics staff to like, no, it's really information. Right. And I remember we had talked about it. It should be the R&D department, research and development. That's what it should be
0: his quote about, about the analytics stuff actually remind it sounded almost verbatim what we were talking about the first time you came on the show about yeah, maybe building John an analytics I don't know yeah maybe yeah. he was maybe john's a, a loyal listener of game over montreal because he was flat out bringing up like data scientists data engineers the actual jobs that we talked about of it's not just bring in some person who's good at analytics talk you know like it's right. building a to, real stitch team that together exactly stitching it together from the the scientific part the research part the modeling part and then translating that for the hockey people it's a whole cohesive process that has has to happen it can't just be one person that's relied on to do everything cuz it's it's, it, it's a it, bunch it's, of different jobs
1: yes and it's funny you brought it up because um i remember uh, it was brought up to me eric Engels had wrote wrote an article about John talking about that specifically and their search for the unicorn to find that person who can marry the, all that data together who has scouting experience and then business experience, but understands data science. And it's not just the numbers. It's not the quantitative, it's the qualitative as well. And marry that all together so that he can, that person can communicate and manage that department effectively. Cause you can't have a whole department full of people who's, discipline is just analytics that is a recipe for disaster which is why if you look at the more robust um i'm going to call them r&d departments i'm not calling them analytics departments anymore i just refuse i'm stating on this show i refuse to call it that because it's ridiculous it's the better departments and you look around industry other business industries that's what they have they may have one or two people max that have analytics background because I somebody with statistics and probability and somebody who actually understands how to use mixed methodology is combining, you know, quantitative and qualitative together. Because what do you think scatter reports are? So you've taken all the information from your amateur staff and your pro staff. Well, that's qualitative. But so the analytics people are just going to dismiss the qualitative completely because they don't understand how to actually break down qualitative information. It was the discussion I talked about with a professor that I know that works in like statistics and probability and analytics. He goes, oh, I've never dealt with qualitative before. Well, then you can't have that person manage it as, as much as I think that person's a genius and he is in his realm. It's in his discipline. If you don't have somebody who can stitch that integrate, what it really is, is about integration, It's integration of data and data is not numbers data is information as John had pointed out. And I think he's going to keep hammering that home. And it's important to kind of get build that narrative to take how things are used and the words we use and change what the meanings are. So we talk about no one wants to hear about rebuild, right? It's the dirty word, right? We need to change what the word, we got to change analytics and call it data, because that's what it is. It's just data. And then what do you use? How do you use that data? You know, and how do you bring it together? Then how do you weight it? What's more valuable? What of all the information you get? What's the most valuable? Like you and I see it on Twitter all the time. The fights. We saw to actually this recently with Alan Walsh and Dom oh, at Athletic going at <laughs> each other about data, right? Friend his of the mom,
0: show, Dom, and I really like Dorm and I, <laughs> and, and, I, and
1: I look at his model, I'm like, okay, it has value, but it has flaws, because all models do. My models do as well, because it's not scientific law, but it's that's a perfect example of the argument of not understanding what data really is. And everybody can get caught in their lane of like this is the one I built, this is the one I use, this is the one I understand, and you put too much weight on a certain model and that's where the danger comes because you get blinders and then you're focusing and funneling everything through that so i like i'm i think the fascinating thing for me is what john does with the r&d department how much they add to their operations staff in terms of player development that's a secondary one and then once again then what are they going to do with their missing assistant general managers and what happens there? Cause they're missing two. If you're going to keep Marty LaPointe as director of player personnel, and then Nick Nick's going to be the director of amateur scouting. What are you doing with the other two assistant GMs? Cause even with Laval being in this, basically the same city,
0: you need someone, you,
1: you need someone in there like managing that every yeah. moment of every day. It's, it's a full time guys. Job. Yes, one hundred percent. And then you need a system GM that oversees both the amateur and pro staff. You got to have it. Spend the money. It's okay. You you yeah. need seven core people. So that to me is more interesting than what they do with the trade deadline. I know the fans are like because that's it's instant gratification. It's that like that bottle of that's that bottle of beer. It is like you know the Habs winning a big game. It's instant gratification. I get it but I think the impact is more on the operation side of who they hire than what they do in terms of the next three weeks lead. And then into the draft. Yeah. I think that's going to be critical.
0: A lot of excitement on all sides here for the Montreal. Oh, if I'm a Habs fan, I'm super excited. You know, honestly,
1: I don't want to be like, I'm not like, not Debbie Downer here. No, 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 no. no. You have to look at the past to realize, okay, we can't do that again. And how did we get there as a new regime? But moving forward, if I'm a Habs fan, Look, I can tell you behind the scenes of people that I've spoken to that work on other NHL teams have said, have said to me, I would love to work for the Habs right now. These are people that are already are employed by other NHL teams that say, based on what's happening, I would love to work there in Montreal. I'd love to work for the Canadians, not only just because of the franchise and what that means, it's the Montreal Canadiens. You may, I think sometimes if you're a Habs fan, you may not appreciate what the outside world thinks of that franchise. It is the New York Yankees. It is the like premier franchise of this entire league. Everybody wants to work there. Now they do. I've had texts and phone calls like, oh, yeah, what do you think is going on Montreal? I goes, oh, I'd love to work there. Uh, like, I like what, you know, Gorton and, and Kent are beginning to put together there. There's such great opportunity there. You know, if you win there... You're a God in that city. You're a God. Yeah. Right? Absolutely.
0: All right. We'll probably wrap it up there because it's late and yeah. uh, we got to get this up as a podcast <laughs> for everybody to listen to. Thanks for joining me, Shane. Uh, awesome. I will Appreciate get you it. to tell everybody where to find your stuff, obviously, but I do want to mention just before we close things out, uh, best well wishes to Arpan and Arjun yes. Bazu and their father, who's in India right now in critical condition. Due to complications from COVID-19, they are trying to get over there. This is why you haven't seen ARPEN covering the Montreal Canadiens that much. So everybody send positive thoughts. Or if you're religious, you can send your your prayers out to the Bazu family because uh, it's a tough situation. I can't imagine
1: what it's the, like for him. Yeah, he's the a horrible great
0: feeling of being yeah. a, a half a world away. And not being and, able to have
1: any control. Of yeah. What, and it's your dad. Yeah, it's it's his dad. And, and Arpen, if you've ever met him, is one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. And so I'm, you know, I'm wishing the best for him. He's one of my favorite people in the media world. Um, so I'm hoping that he gets a chance to get over and see his dad. Um, it's your dad,
0: you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's hopefully the uh, they clear things and allow them to go over there. Because even I understand that it's a covid world and there's rules and regulations still. And we're but there's a humanity slowly...
1: aspect that you just take care of it.
0: Exactly. You shouldn't
1: be allowed to go. It, like yeah. There shouldn't even be one restriction. Get on the next flight. We're going to take care of it. You're cleared. Go, you know, yeah. we still like. Yes, I get it. We're human beings. Take care of
0: each other. Yeah, 100 percent. You got to you got to clear the way there's something that you have to get in there and just let them go so get the bazoos back to india (laughs) let them go and and take care of their dad all right so yeah uh shane tell everybody where to find your work
1: uh well you can see me on twitter at shane malloy and then that tells you when the show's on so it's hockey prospect radio it's on this week on saturday at seven to nine a.m eastern standard time and then on sunday eight to ten a.m eastern standard time it's replayed multiple times during the weekend and we are talking about the Montreal Canadians prospects. So we'll talk about Struble alone in and me right in the first segment, right off the hop. So we get into it for 20 minutes about the prospects. If you want to listen to, to that um, tune in, we always appreciate it.
0: Perfect. Thanks so much. And thanks everybody for Joining in here and uh, coming on for the late show. We had far more people on the stream than I expected. <laughs> Very active chat tonight. I, know, I think people are really excited to watch this team all of a sudden. It, 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 they are worth watching now. That's what I said on Twitter watching this game. 100%. Even when they were down three to one, I said, no, no matter how this game goes, win or loss, like the Canadians are worth watching. Now, even the Jets game was worth watching. They don't give up. They want to play. It's good. Life is good covering the Montreal (laughs) Canadiens. Thanks everybody for joining us and we will see you again on Saturday night.